I'm excited now to jump back into Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, please take it out and open up to Philippians. And we are in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. And as you turn there, I'm sure as you even hear Philippians 2, maybe you have certain thoughts that come to your mind because obviously Philippians 2 is probably one of the most famous passages uh, in the New Testament, often quoted in the New Testament. And it's one of those passages that you can meditate on for a lifetime and feel like you still didn't even come close to scratching the surface of all that's there. But let me ask you, what comes to mind when you think of Philippians 2? Uh, For some of you, you'll think immediately, this is the, the Mount Everest of Christology. Because in Philippians 2, we have the beautiful display of Christ coming down from heaven, taking the form of a servant. For some of you, what pops in your mind when you think Philippians 2, you think of humility. You think maybe of of unity. Uh, For some of you, you gravitate toward that command, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or maybe you're on the flip side, the positive side of that command, and you say, I am to regard one another as more important than myself. And Philippians 2 really does have all the instructions for how we're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. How do we do that? Well, we follow in Christ's example. We follow in Christ's humility. We get rid of pride. We get rid of self-seeking. And we live with that mindset, just love my neighbor as myself. That's Philippians 2, right? Be humble. Be unified. Be like Christ. All of that truth in Philippians is beautiful, it's glorious. And yet, as we approach the text today, I want to make sure we don't make a mistake. That mistake is to fast track to the do section of chapter 2 and totally neglect the why we do what we do here in verse 1. You see, I think the danger for our church is to make a big deal of the exhortation there in verses 2 through 4. And then to go right to the example of Christ's humility in verses 5 through 11, all the while we skip the experience for the Christian that we see in verse 1. Church, it is the experience, experientially, knowing Christ, receiving his love, that is what motivates our obedience for the rest of chapter 2. So just by way of review, if you're new with us today, uh, Philippians is a special church. The church at Philippi for the Apostle Paul, he had a unique bond with them. The reason is because he's really the founder of that church. Remember, as he's writing this from prison a decade earlier, he, he goes and he establishes this church. He's this church's spiritual father. He's this church's missionary. He's this church's pastor. And you remember from Acts chapter 16, it was that sweet lady Lydia, who after hearing the word of God preached from the ministry of Paul, the Lord opened her heart to believe and she became a believer. And there's that demon-possessed girl who's tormented and being used and abused And because of Paul's ministry to her, she's delivered. And you remember the Philippian jailer as he's giving watch over Paul and Silas in prison and God does something amazing and him and his whole entire household are saved because of Paul's ministry. That is the church, at least just three individuals with more from the Philippian, his household. Those are the people that make up the Philippian church and they share a special relationship with Paul. They, they love Paul. They care so much about Paul. They're supporting him financially, and they're looking out for him, looking for ways to intentionally help him and aid him and support him as he continues his gospel work. And as you read through the book of Philippians, what you find is this is really a model church. It's nothing like the church at Corinth. It seems like everything that Paul says is good and sweet and highly relational. And we marvel at that because the Philippians are mostly Gentiles. Uh, They didn't grow up like some of us where we have the Bible in our house and we have parents who are teaching us gospel truth. No, these are people who didn't have the Bible growing up, people who were converted later in life, but 
They're soaking up the Word of God. They love the Word of God. They love the Apostle Paul. But despite being such a gospel-centered, gospel-focused church, this congregation faces a major problem. And it might not be so obvious as you flip through the pages because there is no major doctrinal error. It's like when you read 1 Corinthians, you see it almost on every page. Philippians is not so easy to identify, but there's a serious sin threatening their spiritual growth. It is a deadly sin, one that is an immediate danger, and it is the danger of division in the body. It's the deadly disease of disunity. And what brings about that disunity is the root of pride and selfishness and arrogance. All of that will disrupt their unity. And so Paul calls major attention in this book to that very thing. And as you read the letter of Philippians, what you find is there is grumblings, there's disputings, there's self-seeking, So much so, in chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul actually singles out two girls in the church, two ladies. He says there in 4.2, I urge, I plead with Yodia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And then he calls not just them to unity, but he calls the church to come alongside them and support them to fight for their unity. He says, look, these women have helped me They've been such an encouragement to me. But right now, these two are divided, and that is a poison for our church. And so church, we can't allow that to fester. We we can't allow that to grow. we got to put to death disunity. And the reality is, even for our church, we're experiencing growth. We're experiencing health. We celebrate that here. And yet, one of the big dangers here among our body is disunity. So as grateful, listen, as grateful as I am for the direction we're going and the health we're experiencing, I am terrified of disunity and what it could do to our church. I think we would be foolish if we said, oh, we've, we've arrived. We've, we've entered a stage of just great spiritual health. Because the truth is, sin and Satan and selfishness every day want to destroy our unity as a church. And so what are our instructions from the Word of God? Fight for unity. Don't let the seeds of bitterness, unforgiveness, gossip, backbiting, dissension, don't let those things grow up and choke out our unity. So look, even though there's lots of room for growth, We need to understand that arrogance and pride will destroy our unity. And so we want to fight for it. And we want to fight for it for this reason. Because Jesus himself prayed for it. Uh, Hold your place there in Philippians chapter 2 and turn to John chapter 17. John 17. You'll be familiar with Jesus' prayer in John 17. Look there at verse 11. This is the Lord himself praying. What does he pray? He says this in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And then skip down to verse 21. Jesus says there, continuing to pray, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What a sweet glimpse into the private prayer life of Christ as he is praying for us, not just the disciples, but us today, that we, like the Father, Son, and Spirit, would be unified. And the reason, he says, time and time again, is because the world will see. They'll see the unity. They'll see the beauty. And they'll give you 
the Father glory. And you say, well, that should be motivation enough because Jesus prayed. But we should be unified because Jesus prayed for that very thing. And yet, what we see is that we have more motivation, more incentive for our unity. And that is what we're going to focus on this morning. So would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father, we desperately need your help this morning to not just consider these things, not to be intellectually stimulated by these truths, but God, that we would fill them deep within our soul, that we would be challenged and changed by this call to unity and understand to the best of our ability, with the help of the Spirit, what the motivation for our Christian unity is. So please be our help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's our main idea. If you're taking notes, uh, this is a little long, but I tried to condense this truth because I think this is what the text is saying. Look, church, when we consider the profound experiences of God's gospel love toward us, you know what happens? We're encouraged and we're equipped to obey the exhortation to live in humble unity. I know it's a mouthful, but let me say it again. When we consider the profound experiences of God's gospel love toward us, we're encouraged and equipped to obey the exhortation to live in humble unity. And it's a really easy outline because it comes straight from the text. What Paul does here in verse 1, he gives us four powerful motivations for why we need to strive for Christian unity. You can think of these as four legs of the chair that cause our unity to stand. And here they are, the motivation for Christian unity. First, it's his encouragement. His encouragement that we have Christ's own personal presence among us. Second is his endearment. That we as believers have experienced the wealth of his love. Then third, it's his endowment that he has given us his Holy Spirit and he has unified us together by the Spirit. And then fourthly, it was his empathy that Christ, that the Father, that the Holy Spirit has demonstrated, has shown to us his sweet and tender mercy, his encouragement, his endearment, his endowment, his empathy. And we'll see that in the text. Look with me there, starting back in verse 27, as I read, Paul writes this, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Chapter 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Again, a very familiar text. How does this connect with what we've been learning in the past weeks? Well, look there. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with, therefore. That connects what he's going to say here with what we've just learned. But specifically, that therefore goes back to verse 27. Look there at 27, where we learned about this supreme command, only worthily of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves as citizens. And Paul says, I want you. As you live worthily of the gospel, as citizens, heavenly citizens, to stand firm together, to strive together, to even suffer together. And we looked at that last time as we saw that all this opposition that was coming from outside, 
Uh, the Philippians needed encouragement. And so Paul gives them a theology of suffering. He said there in verse 29 that the suffering we experience for Christ's sake is actually a gracious gift. That it's God himself who gives the suffering. And he gives the suffering, one, to remind you that you are saved. And if you're suffering for Christ's sake, it is God's favor on you. But also, it's a reminder to those who are oppressing us, who are persecuting us, that they have ultimate doom coming their direction. But Paul says, look, we need to stand firm against this external conflict. And now he switches gears and he says, but we need to stand firm together for the internal conflict that may arise. And again, we look at this passage and we say, how as a church are we going to stay unified? Paul could have just given some superficial advice. He could have just said, look, get with the program, Christian. Be unified. But he doesn't do that. No, instead he persuades us and he provides the proper motivation for us to remain unified. And verse 1, it enumerates the resources that the Philippians can tap into to maintain their unity. So here again is our motivation. And we must, church, listen, we must understand the motivation before we can obey the mandate. Before we follow the model of Christ-like humility, we must understand what the motivation is. So you can look at it this way. Verse 1 tells us what is true. Verse 2 tells us what we're to do. And verses 3 and following tell us how we're to do it. So we're looking at the motivation. What is true? Look again with me. Verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, if you're visiting with us and you're not in Christ, I have to just tell you from the get-go, this verse, this, this passage is not for you. This passage is for the Christian for the one that has a relationship with Christ. Because all of us together can say, there is encouragement in Christ. There is consolation of love. There's fellowship of the Spirit. There's affection and compassion because we belong to Christ. You see, the unity that Paul is calling for here, it's not the result of some natural oneness. It is a supernatural bonding together because we are believers. And so Paul's appeal in this passage, it really begins with focusing on our relationship with Christ, each of us individually and collectively. And in order to highlight the awareness of our relationship with Christ, what Paul does is something amazing. He uses a literary, a literary device to grab our attention. You say, Dom, what is that? Well, look there again. Paul uses what we call a first-class conditional clause. Now, I'm going to geek out just for a little bit because I think it's helpful. There are no verbs in this verse. And in fact, if you have the ESV, the ESV only has one if. But the original language has four ifs. You say, well, why so many ifs? Why is he being redundant or repetitive with the ifs? Let me read it to you the way it actually reads. Therefore, if any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. You say, Dom, I don't see what the big deal is. If is a pretty standard word. I tell my kids, if you finish your dinner, you can have dessert. But see, in that statement right there, there's a little bit of uncertainty because the kids might not like their dinner. And they might be unwilling to finish their dinner to have dessert. But that's not the only way an if statement is used. In the Bible, oftentimes, an if is used not about possibility, but to express certainty. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's say my kids ate all their dinner. And they say, Daddy, can we have dessert? And I say, well, if you eat all your dinner, you can have dessert. I said the exact same thing. But do you see what the difference is? They ate their dinner. So my statement actually provides more certainty. It is a guarantee because it is done. 
Paul, as he uses this word if, he's not expressing doubt. He's not expressing possibility. He's moving beyond that to say, this is true of you. This is a certainty. He's he's drawing our attention to just how true these things are in verse 1. That explains why so many commentators, rather than saying the word if, they use the word since. So they'll say, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have consolation of love, since you have fellowship of the Spirit, since you have affection and compassion. And when you translate the verse like that, it moves from the hypothetical to the hard facts. And I think that's great, the perfect way to translate it. But still, when I read it, I say, but Paul chose if for a reason. There is a, um, a Greek scholar, a grammarian, his name is Daniel Wallace, and he says this, when we're too quick to turn an if into a since, this is what it does. It turns an invitation of dialogue into a lecture. I like what Dr. Wallace says, because what he's saying is that, look, Paul intentionally chose this word if to provide rhetorical force. He's trying to heighten the emotional impact by framing it this way. He's essentially asking a question and wanting them to think about the answer and then to answer it. So Dr. MacArthur, he paints this picture well, and he writes this. Imagine a father sitting down with a son, and he says this, son, have you been loved by this family? Have your mother and father loved you faithfully? Have we encouraged you? When you were down and sad, have we not come alongside you to offer compassion and care and sympathy? When you were hungry, have we provided food for you, clothed you? Have we nurtured you as you grew from a little child? Have we provided all the medical care that you needed to live a healthy life? Have we given you a warm environment in which to live, a bed to sleep, a room to dwell in? Son, have we shown you deep affection? Have we been gracious to you in times when you were disobedient and rebellious, gracious to forgive you and love you and restore you? Son, have we shown you sympathy? Have we shown you mercy? Have we been patient with you while you were learning how to do things right and often did them wrong? Have you known our affection and compassion? Have you experienced our goodness to you, son, since all these things are true? Isn't it reasonable for mom and dad to ask you to live in a way that's going to bring us joy? It's reasonable, isn't it? You see the difference there? When you frame it that way, it has a much deeper impact. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to do. He's asking you, Christian, have you? Have you experienced God's love, the sweet fellowship of the Spirit? Have you experienced his affection and compassion? And your responsibility is to think on that and say, yes, I have. You know, we oftentimes to get our kids in line, tell them just to do something. And that works. But when you get down on your knee and look them in the eye and say, doesn't mommy and daddy love you? It has a different emotional impact. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. He's not trying to shame them into obedience. He's saying, we do this because our God is a good God. So here's all the incentive all the motivation for obedience. And he expects us as believers to say, who has treated me better than God? Who has been more gracious? Who has been more merciful? Who has provided not only salvation, but sanctification? Who is with me every day, supplying my every need? God is. And because of that, I want to be united with brothers and sisters in Christ. When that church is our starting point, then we can joyfully obey the mandate to be unified. We can then follow in the model that Christ sets for us with humility. So let's, with the rest of our time, just take a look at this inspired list of blessings. These blessings that are motivated to encourage us toward unity. 
And all of them are really comprehensive. They're meant to actually pull on your heartstrings and desire with everything you have the unity of the church. Here's the first motivation for, the, for our unity. It is encouragement. Look there, the word encouragement. It's actually a compound word. And often it's translated consolation or comfort. And it conveys the meaning of coming alongside someone because they're in need of assistance. They need aid. You remember in the upper room when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, hey, I'm going to the cross. I am going to die. I am going to I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you remember how the disciples responded. They were despondent. They were scared. They were frightened. They were anxious. And Jesus says, but hold on. I'm sending you, and what does he say? A what? A helper. Same, same form of the word, a paraclete. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension pave the way for him to be with us all the time. So he says, I'm going to send you a helper. My own presence will be with you all the time. When Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's reminding us that Jesus' very nature, his very ministry, is that of encouragement and comfort. That's who Jesus is. And remember, that's particularly helpful because Paul just dropped a truth bomb on them and said, you will be persecuted and you will suffer, but have no fear because Christ is with you all along the way. Paul he wanted to make sure that if they suffered for the name of Christ, that they would recognize that God always draws near to those who are suffering. He always provides encouragement and comfort. And God says himself, I will never leave you or what? Forsake you. In fact, if you wanted to, you could sum up all of Christ's ministry with that word right there, encouragement. Now, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I just want to show you the very first time that we see this word in the Bible, you'll be familiar, Luke chapter 2, in verse 25, it was the righteous man Simeon who used this word. We're told there that Simeon, he's eagerly looking, he's waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. In the context of that passage, he wants the hopeful expectation to become a reality that the Messiah would come, the Messiah that the Jews had longed for, because when he comes, he will fully and finally fulfill the Abrahamic promises that were made to their forefathers. And so look down there at verse 25. It says that Simeon was looking for the consolation. That's the same word of Israel. Look, church, when Jesus Christ took on flesh, and came to the earth, he brought with him eternal encouragements. Is there anything more encouraging than what it says in John 1.14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you realize when Jesus, as a baby, stepped onto the earth, with him came an encouragement like no other. The infinite, eternal, holy God of the universe became a man. And then he took our sin on him. He provided perfect righteousness, a righteousness we didn't deserve. He adopted us into his family and he promised us his presence. All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me and lo, I am with you. How long, Jesus? even till the end of the age. Christian, you have the promise of his presence for all of eternity. And you say, well, what could be more encouraging than that? We know him. We've been found in him. He's given us faith. He's given us eternal life. Shouldn't that encourage you this morning? And what Paul is saying, look, if that encourages you, shouldn't you be an encouragement to others? Shouldn't your presence do the same kind of thing that Christ's presence does for us? How does God encourage us? It's usually through the avenue of these hands and these feet. 
That is how God wants to bless the church through you. He wants to show his presence, his love, his affection through you. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says. Therefore, we are to encourage one another and build them up. This is what the early church did in Acts chapter 9. It says that all the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort or encouragement of the Spirit. Listen, I know that one of the gifts listed in Romans chapter 12 is the gift of encouragement. But I don't want you to say, well, I don't have that gift, so I'm not going to encourage anybody. Encouragement is for every single believer. Haven't there been times when you've been just down in the dumps and God very timely and wisely sends someone to you to offer you encouragement? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. And then you say, why does God give me comfort? Watch this. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Look, our ministry of encouragement to one another is the way that God keeps our church unified. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, I want you to have the same mind, the same heart, the same affection. And how do we express that? Through being a comfort, an encouragement to one another. So mutual encouragement builds up the church. It preserves our unity. Now Paul expands on that idea with the next word he uses here, and it is consolation of love. This is the endearment. We are recipients of Christ's love. Now this word, it's unique. So unique, it's the only time it appears in the Bible. It is the word paramuthion. Very similar to the word encouragement, but yet there's a little difference here. And the difference is this. It literally describes coming close to someone and actually speaking to them. When you console someone, what you're doing is you're drawing near because they're sad or they're discouraged, and you're attempting to speak per persuasively to give them some love and give them some comfort. It's that same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We're told that we are to admonish the unruly, but that's not all, because not everyone is just unruly. Some people are just discouraged. And so Paul says there, we're to encourage the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted means little soul. Speak words of consolation to those who have a little soul. And you say, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt little soul? Discouraged, defeated, heartbroken, disheartened? I think all of us have been there. And in those moments, what we need is not someone to come with us with a paddle, but we need someone to come alongside us and speak words of consolation. What better consolation, church, is there than God's love for you? One writer said this, that the Lord comes close to us and he whispers words of gentle cheer and tender counsel, and he does it in the believer's ear. Have you experienced that before? Let me just remind you. Turn to Romans chapter 8. It's just good for you. It's good for you because I know that intellectually you know this, that God loves me. But Paul is pressing in and saying, but yeah, do you really feel that? Do you know that love? Look at what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Paul writes, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, Paul is asking here, has God ever spoke loving, consoling, comforting words to you? Church, has he persuaded you of his love for you? You say, well, I don't know it. I don't feel it. I don't see it. Just think about Christ on the cross. How much did God love you that much? If this this is true, and it is, Christian, can you in turn make my joy complete by consoling one another? Can you maintain your unity by looking out for your brother and sister when they're down and come alongside them and speak words of truth and life to them? The Apostle John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we will be called children of God, and such we are. The psalmist in Psalm 63 says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Church, do you realize that you today, sitting here, are loved with an everlasting love? You think about mom's love, dad's love, spouse's love, child's love. Great love, powerful love, but imperfect love. Sometimes fragile, sometimes fickle. God's love for you is never those things. Think of who God is. He's infinite. He's perfect. You know what that means? He loves you with an infinite and perfect love. And we have confidence knowing that God's unchanging, undying love for us will never fail. That's why Spurgeon says of this word, he says, consolation is the dropping of a gentle dew from heaven on a desert heart beneath. If you've experienced consolation of love from your father, Paul says, make my joy compete complete, and love the same way toward your brothers and sisters. When we experience God's love, it's going to naturally just flow out. It has to, because that's what John tells us, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to what? Love one another. We love, obviously, because he first loved us, and he set his love and affection on us, and he did that by uniting us with his spirit. And that's our third point here. We're reminded that we share in the fellowship of the spirit. Point three, endowment. We have the life-giving spirit, the unifying spirit. We've already run into this word back in chapter one and verse five, where he uses this word koinonia. This is participation, partnership in gospel ministry. And the reality is something beautiful happens when you and I come to Christ. This is what happens. This is a miracle. Don't get used to this. Keep being awed and amazed by this. The same spirit that indwelt Jesus is indwelling you. The same spirit. He has come and took residence in our heart. And he comes and he brings comfort and consolation and guidance, and wisdom, and discernment, and peace. And he equips us as we make much of Christ. And one of the wonders that the Spirit performs is that he creates this inseparable unity between us and other believers. So you heard that phrase, of blood is thicker than water. Well, you know what's thicker than that? The Spirit of God in us. The body of Christ is not just some united organization. No, no, no. We are a living organism. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 says. Paul writes, You are not of the flesh, but you are of what? The Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. The Bible's teaching is clear. The Spirit comes and tabernacles in you and me and unites us together with the Trinity. That's why in Romans 5.5 we read this, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So look, I'm not about charismatic chaos, but there's one thing that our church should be marked by, and that is living in the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We pray in the Spirit. We love the Spirit because the Spirit unites us together as a body and it unites us together with our triune God. And then the fourth and final clause, you have an if there, but it's different than the previous three. Take a look at it. You see, the previous three, there's a possessive particle. That just means that there's encouragement, but it's not just encouragement, it's encouragement in Christ. And there's consolation, but it's not just consolation, it's consolation of love. And then there's fellowship, but it's fellowship of the Spirit. But we don't see that with affection and compassion. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why is this not connected to anything? I think the answer is simple. It's really connected to the triunity of God. Turn with me real quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 as Paul closes his letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And the very last verse, in verse 14, we read this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Simple, but over and over again in the New Testament, our unity is always connected to the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. We are to be one. We are unified by the gospel, but it is a Trinitarian gospel. Again, over and over again, when you have people like the the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and other false religions, if you do not have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you do not have the gospel. But look at what he says. This is his empathy that we enjoy. We have affection and compassion. That word affection is a great Greek word. It's splachna. It literally means the internal organs of your midsection. So we usually say, hey, I love you with all my what? Well, I say I love you with all my bowels. We don't, we don't say that, do we? But that is what this word is. I love you with all of my bowels, my entrails. You say, that's disgusting. That, that's the way they thought of it. That, that is the strongest expression in the Greek of the kind of compassionate, moving, inner, deep love. This is how Paul felt toward a Philippian church. This is how a pastor should feel toward his church. I love you with everything inside of me. He said there in 1.8, For God is my witness. I'm calling on God. How I long for you all with the affection, same word, of Christ Jesus. Now listen, it's interesting that he's not talking about our affections for one another. He's not even talking about our affections for God. What Paul is describing here is God's entrails, his splachna, his affection for us. Let that settle in for a second. That God 
has this deep-seated, strong, infinite, perfect affection for you. And I know sometimes this is hard to swallow because you say, I know that God loves me because it's, we just read that in Romans chapter 8. And my pastor tells me, and my husband tells me, and my friend tells me, but I don't what? I don't feel loved by God. Well, I could tell you, your feelings really don't matter. But the reason why we see it over and over and over again is because God wants you to feel loved. He is a God of tender mercy. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I just want to show you, again, going back to Jesus as he's just stepping on the scene. Here we have this use of the word splachna, and it's found there in Luke 177. It's Zacharias. He's prophesying that the child Jesus will come. And look at verse 77. It says, He'll come to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. And all of the Reformed brothers and sisters in here say yes and amen. But listen, verse 78, because of his tender mercy. It is the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon all those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. But look, God didn't just feel this affection toward us. He acted on it. Paul pairs this word splachna, affection, with the word compassion or, or mercy. God showed us not just mercy, but tender mercy. He felt this feeling, and he expresses it in mercy. The truth that the Bible proclaims is that you and I deserve punishment. Because of your sin, you deserve judgment. Because of your rebellion, you deserve hell. But God was mercifully gracious to you. And so now, you have Christ's righteousness. It's credited to your account. All of your sins, past, present, future, everything you did today and tomorrow is forgiven. He has chosen you. He's adopted you as sons and daughters. He's given you his Holy Spirit. You are freed from sin. But those aren't just benefits of salvation. Those are sweet and tender mercies motivated out of his love for you. You see, feeling God's mercy and love and his tenderness it is so crucial because it is a motivation for us to stay unified. Remember, Paul is saying, have you felt it? Have you experienced it? Do you know it? If you do, then you should express it in the way that you live amongst one another. Before Paul gets to the command, and we'll look at the command next time, before he gets to what must be practiced, he wants to focus our attention on the blessings that have already been provided. Listen, church, the key to maintaining our unity, as we'll look at over the next several weeks, is that we've all experienced the sweet gospel love of God the Father, God the Son, and Jesus Christ. God the Father felt it. The Son comes and demonstrates it. And the Spirit of God teaches us and helps us grow in our knowledge of it. Ephesians 4 says this, There is only one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what Paul is saying, look, because that is true, let this reminder sweep you off your feet to pursue unity with everything you have. If, church, if you and I are constantly thinking this way and acting on this, then it's going to be very difficult for us to be unified, disunified. It's going to be hard for there to be division in our church. So let me just finish with this last thing. Have you personally experienced these things? Have you received encouragement from Christ? Have you been the recipients of his consoling love? Have you enjoyed fellowship that comes 
from the Spirit? Have you experienced his affection and compassion? If you're sitting here and you say, no, I haven't, then talk to me. Talk to Nick. Talk to any of our members. John Paul pleaded last week, today is the day of salvation. There is no guarantee that tomorrow will come. There is no guarantee that you'll flip over the calendar. If God is speaking to you, today is the day of salvation. Would you please repent, believe, trust Christ, and experience this manifold blessing which unites us both to God and to one another. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve anything. I think about the life that I lived before Christ, a life of selfishness, a life that was set on pleasure, self-gratification, no consideration for anyone but me. Oh Lord, I was doomed, doomed to hell because of my rebellion, because of my stubbornness, because of my hatred of all that is good. And I know that's not my own personal testimony. That's the testimony of all of us, young and old, male and female. All of us, Lord, at one time were enemies of the cross, but you, because of your sweet, tender mercy, because of your deep-seated affection, you saved us, not according to our works, not because things we've done, not because we shaped up and reformed ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive together with Christ. Oh Lord, thank you for your sweet and tender and affectionate mercy. Thank you for uniting us to your spirit. Thank you, God, that you always speak love and truth to us. And thank you, Father, that you are near. What an encouragement that is to our heart and what a motivation for us to remain unified to maintain this unity that speaks to the world that you are great and glorious. O oh Lord, fill us with this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.